You're listening to Straight Talk Wealth with your experts in all aspects of wealth accumulation, preservation, and income guaranteed to last a lifetime. And now, more Straight Talk Wealth with your host, Bruce Whitey. Hey, welcome back to this uh, special podcast and CD version of Straight Talk Wealth Radio. Uh, we're able to do a lot more detail, a lot more storytelling. So uh, I actually love this format. It's my preferred format. But when we're on the radio, we have to urgently get people to call so we can tell a little less story and have to do a little more huckstering. Uh, I am going to urge you to take some actions in the course of this show, as you've already heard in the first half, because uh, intellectual enlightenment is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't mean a whole lot unless you can actually put it to some application. And so uh, we want you to take some action along that lines. That's why we ask you to go ahead and order that free retirement roadmap, which is the place to start in changing your thinking and, and getting a strategic look at really what your circumstances are that need to be changed or don't need to be changed. So don't go grabbing, don't invest by grabbing things off of shiny things off a shelf because they look good. You heard they're good. They make a little bit more than what is your actual strategic plan to get to where you want to be? And then those tactical maneuvers will start to get some clarity in terms of whether they're relative to you or not. All right. But overall today, what we're talking about is addicted to stimulus. Is this country addicted to stimulus? And how can Mr. Bernanke get our economy through rehab? Um, you know, we're basically here to help hardworking people understand who are going to be the winners and losers in the historically unique financial decade of the 2010s. This is really a story about the best way to have a recovery where nobody gets left out. Because right now, quite frankly, uh, the wealthy have really enjoyed this recovery. Uh, their stocks have come back. Uh, those that know how to make markets are making them like never before. But, you know, the average working American, I know he's got his 401k and it seems like he's got so much of his wealth in the market, but he's a minor player. He doesn't move these markets. And those of you that are putting your majority of your retirement planning into what Wall Street gives you, it's just important to realize that you are basing your entire financial future on events that you can neither predict or control. Now, what I want to talk about today is how, and what we are talking about, is how little risk there seems to be anymore. It looks like the government has made everything all better. We just have wonderful people that work in the government. And they can control the destiny of the universe, I suppose, if they need to, because we are the United States and we're the biggest, strongest country in the whole darn planet. And uh, when we set our mind to do something, it always gets done. Well, better make sure nothing happens to my goals. If you look at what we have done to solve the financial crisis, which is to reinflate the bubbles. Let's go back to the way it all was before, which wasn't healthy. That's not what we want. Now, to have a solution, you really have to understand the causes of the problem you're trying to solve. So I want to just talk about that for a minute. And coming up in this half, I have a fantastic uh, in-depth interview, mostly uncut. Uh, when we go to AM broadcast, I will cut this down tremendously. But you're going to get to hear in the second half the entire morning I spent with Harry Dent talking about some of these issues um, you know, in terms of what should be done, that isn't being done, where are we headed the way things are, and who's at risk. 
But I just want to talk about to have a solution, you really have to understand the causes. So this crisis definitely had uh, the crisis I'm talking about, 2008, that we are still recovering from. And the whole world is still basically embroiled in what fell apart in 2008. That crisis definitely had ethical causes or uh, I guess a better way of putting it, it had unethical causes. Uh, a great author I really recommend you read on this is John R. Talbot. John is uh, all about the, the story of how the government's bought. The regulators in the government are bought. So now those of you that listen to this that tend to be political, if I say that we don't have enough regulation, it, it bristles a lot of hairs of libertarians or right wing people. And if I uh, say that, you know, the government's the whole cause of this and the government this and the government that, then the right wingers are happy with me and the left wingers think, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a reactionary. Well, I want to get you thinking on this for yourself. I want you to think about this for yourself. Let's take a uh, and I, I tend to be somewhat libertarian in a lot of my viewpoints, but but I'm not by party or by partisan of it. So let's take a sensible look. Let's just say, for example, that one side of this is the banks need to be more regulated. We really need to get more regulation. We got to really watch the sneaky stuff that they're doing. And I agree. Now, if that bristles you and you think, oh, this guy wants to regulate wall, regulate everything. People should be independent on their own. Then let's look at what the FDIC really is. Are you willing to have a banking system without an FDIC, federally, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, that says that if your bank fails, they're going to reimburse your account, I believe we're up to $250,000, at least $200,000 today. So you got money in the bank. We learned from the Great Depression that banks fail. When you have these kinds of systematic breakdowns, people that have their wealth sitting in the bank lose it. So we decided after we as a country decided after the Great Depression that we would put some sort of government backstop to the banks. That's called the FDIC. Now, the problem with the FDIC is it creates in the investment and financial world what's known as the potential for moral hazard. Now, moral hazard means something reckless, something is done in a financial matter that adds to risk in a hazardous way. It almost sort of implies negligence. So when banking systems have a government backstop, they go off and they do the crazy things with our money that they were doing. They, they uh, get deeply involved in collateralized debt obligations. They make loans that are shaky loans. And the whole system can really go very unethical. But it doesn't matter because you know when you give them their money, which is, which is the core foundation of the bank, depositors' money, they may leverage off of that. They may get other leveraging and loans and derivatives to occur. But it all begins with depositors' money. So in order to get that depositor's money, they've got the government making you feel like it's always going to be safe. It's what they do after that point that becomes very unethical. But you're still going to give them money because you know it's always safe. So it raises the question that if you don't want to regulate this activity, then let's go all the way, libertarians. And I'm not, listen, I consider myself one of them, but in a, in a balanced way. <laughs> So my point is, let's go all the way and say, okay, if you don't want to regulate the banking system, let's get rid of the FDIC. And your job is when you go put your money in a bank, 
you ask them for their portfolio. You want to see where it's all being put. And if that bank is offering tremendously high interest rates and you're willing to take the risk that they're doing in order to get there, more power to you. But the government's not going to bail you out if it fails, period. You see, once you have the government coming in and creating that backstop to the banking system, then you either choose at that point to regulate on behalf of the taxpayer against inordinate risks that these banks are taking or just get rid of the backstop altogether. Now, that where I started out trying to tell you is, yes, that was a core element to what actually made the system break down and fail during the banking crisis of 2008. That is poor regulation of a banking system that inherently was inviting financial hazard. But unfortunately, and very timely, there's this other element, and it happened to occur concurrent with an organic demographic cause, an organic cause that was bound to shrink our economy. And by organic, I mean the human chemistry of people having sex. That chemistry that happens because sex makes babies, if you didn't know that. And that brings it out of the bedroom and into the economy. And as long as people have more sex or less sex, it's going to affect economies. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Keynesian viewpoint is that the government is operating on right now is that it is confidence that drives an economy. Confidence drives demand. If people know that they're going to have a job tomorrow, if their pay is going to go up with inflation and all that, then they're going to consume well. And 70% of the gross domestic product of at least the United States is consumption. So when everybody's confident, everybody's consumes. Well, let me ask you something. If you are a baby boomer, if you're in that generation born between 1946 and 1964, you're now in your 50s and 60s, okay? The kids get out of the house. They go to college. You get them out of the house. Are you now ready to start a consumption binge? Are you ready to buy all kinds of crap that maybe you don't need just because, uh, just because things are cheap? There's something about who you are in your period of life that's going to say, no, what I'm doing right now is I am going to retire all of my debt. I'm going to pay my debt off. That takes money out of the economy to pay down debt. And I'm going to save or invest the rest of it. That also limits your consumption. So if you have, and, and what is the baby boom? It's 80 million plus people of the 300 million people in this country. It is a football going through a garden hose as a demographic is. So what the baby boom does is what is very much a driver of our current economy. Now, at some point that will fade out and the baby boom will die out and there'll be other demographic trends, which we can see today and predict. But we know that most families hit their peak consumption years around 47 to 50 years old. And I learned this from Harry S. Dent. Um, and, and if you follow Harry, you're going to learn all about demographics. And we'll talk a bit about it today. Uh, there's another good book out called what to, if you just want to get someone else's viewpoint, cause we feature Harry so much, it's called what to expect when nobody's expecting America's coming demographic disaster written by a younger man named Jonathan V last. Uh, and that came out this year and I highly recommend it. And you know, between me and you, if you look at the last chapter in here, um, he has things like uh, America's failing fertility, 
the roots of one child. And the last chapter is how to make babies. So it's worth getting through the book just to get that last chapter. Hey, anyway, so the point is that you as a generation, the most biggest demographic generation is pulling back on your consumption, no matter what the government does. Now, consider the course of other countries such as Japan. Their baby boom peaked earlier than ours. It actually peaked in the mid-90s. And just before it, they had a real estate boom and a stock boom. And those two markets have not recovered. If you think real estate always goes up, just dial up the phone and ask, call anybody in Japan and ask them if real estate can stay down for 25 years. Now, in Japan, they currently have 1.4 children being born for every couple. So their population is shrinking. How do you get more demand? How do you increase demand and grow an economy when inherent to your own country, demand is shrinking? Well, you can try to sell overseas, but as China is learning, that's not always dependable. And if the rest of the world is declining in its population, which the United States and Europe are doing, their baby booms were larger than their current growth rate, then their demand begins to shrink too. So China says, well, we're, we can't sell it to these guys. Their demand is shrinking. Let's sell more internally. But what did China institute back in the 60s? A one-child policy. Now think forward to what happens when you start having more old people and less young people. What happens to things like the balance of Social Security, Medicare? How does a smaller, younger generation actually take care of an older generation that is probably going to need a lot of other expenses like medical expenses. How as a group or as a culture or as a society or an economy, how does that work out? Now, uh, contrary to that, by the way, you should know that India is the opposite demographic. India has lots of young people and much fewer old people. And India is going to be one of the key emerging markets going into the future. So I wanted to cover this just because when we go into talking with Harry Dent, it's very important to have this basic understanding of how demographics pushes economies up or down. And the fact is that it is older people cause deflationary pressures. They stop spending, they reduce demand, and that starts to shrink an economy. And what you have going, and this is what today's show is about, is you're not seeing it because the Keynesian government economic philosophy is we just didn't pump enough money into the system. Now, listen, let's take that concept for a second, that all of this can be solved by simply printing money and pumping it in the system to add confidence. When do you know that that doesn't work? If you tell a Keynesian, hey, it doesn't look like your theories are working. We pumped a lot of money in and it just doesn't seem to be turning things around. And again, I'm going to requote something. Harry's going to talk more about it in a minute. We've put $2 trillion of new money into the economy, a trillion dollars in fiscal stimulus. That means the government spending money that it doesn't have and a trillion dollars of printed monetary stimulus of the Fed pushing new dollars into the economic system. And we have a stock market that seems to be loving it. But the actual growth of our gross domestic product is 2%, $300 billion dollars. 
So we've gained $300 billion in growth for a $2 trillion ticket. Well, what's a Keynesian going to tell you? It wasn't enough. You should have done more. How do you know when this isn't working? There's no way that it won't work. The only answer is you should have printed more. You should have spent more. So these two philosophies or these two elements of a government putting its finger on the dial and thinking the economy is a thermostat. And if you just turn it up hot enough, it heats up versus uh, organic demography that is saying we're paring down. We're, we're, we're bringing in, we're coming in out of the, out of the uh, heat, out of the cold, whatever. We're sitting by the fireplace and we're just toning it down for good, you know, which is what the baby boomers are doing. So, Keith, that's a key conflict. I want to get into that. All right. Let's uh, take you into Harry Dent's uh, interview that we did. And then I actually, in the middle of that, I want to talk a little bit about what this means to you, how you should be adjusting your strategy, and and what you should personally be doing about uh, all of these concerns. Now, I like to pick on Harry once in a while and get a little bit under his skin. So uh, the first thing I usually start off with is uh, I throw a bunch of contrary information out at Harry uh, just to have him have to deal with it and say, well, explain this. And it's a great story on the Wall Street Journal that uh, occurred recently that was about some things that were going right in the economy, things that you may not know that are actually three indicators that were going very well. Um, And they were basically... Uh, you'll hear the clip here. They talk about 2.1 million new payrolls over the last year is at least keeping pace with population increases. Uh, business investment near historic highs, about one and a half trillion dollars a year in new investment over the last three years. That's slightly more than 11 percent of our gross domestic product going to business reinvestment. And consumers are spending more and saving less. So listen to the clip. And then after this clip, I'm going to challenge Harry on some of these points. Unemployment is stubbornly high. Income is stagnant, and Washington can't do anything without manufacturing some kind of fiscal crisis. Hi, I'm Jim Gelter at Market Watch. These are grim economic realities that we can't seem to escape, and yet parts of the economy are doing far better than you might think. Market Watch columnist Rex Nutting has a piece on our site that zeroes in on three areas of the nation's economy that offset a lot of the negatives out there. One of those is payrolls. We've been adding about 200,000 new jobs a month lately. Economists tell us that that number should be closer to 300,000 if we're going to be able to bring nationwide employment down from 7.5% to a much healthier 5.5%. Well, that's true. But a boom in employment isn't likely until we've seen a boom in the broad economy. Meanwhile, payrolls are up about 2.1 million over the past year. That's good news because it's at least keeping pace with the increase in population over the same period. And when consumer demand does pick up, most companies will be forced to add workers to meet demand. But here's another sign of underlying economic strength. Business investment is near historic highs. While we often hear that companies are stifling growth by hoarding cash, that only tells half the story. While they might have tons of cash, that doesn't mean that they haven't done investing. In fact, business investment has averaged $1.5 trillion a year over the past three years. Measured another way, that means business investment in the first quarter of this year was slightly more than 11% of GDP. Now, that's a pace of investment exceeded only twice in our history during the first tech boom in the late 1990s, and during the housing credit bubble of 2006 and 2007. Of course, they can invest even more. The only reason they aren't is because demand isn't strong enough to justify it. That brings us to consumer spending. Economists complain that the economy would be doing a lot better if people simply spent more money. That's because retail sales account for about 70% of GDP. 
But the numbers show that consumers are spending about as much as they can, and sometimes maybe more than they should. That can be seen in the rate of personal savings, which has fallen to 2.7%. That's extremely low, so don't blame consumers for holding back. They're already doing all they can to help the economy. The only way we can expect consumers to spend more is if they get more income, more wealth, or take on more debt. Of these three, most economists would say that more income is the right way to go. It would support more spending, more jobs, and ultimately, more growth. Yeah, there you go. All you have to do is just get people more income. That'll solve it. Definitely solves it for me. Anytime I get more income. How you do that <laughs> is the question. All right, so I uh, put these questions. I put the, Harry to this because this is some good news. There's some things going in the right direction. I mean, maybe maybe the Fed's got it down. So um, let's get into that. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who haven't heard Harry before, um, he's no holds barred and he's a little bit of a cusp. But sorry, that's what we love about him. Hey, listen, I want to go over some uh, ideas here with you about what's happening in the news right now, Harry. Um, we just listened to a clip from the Wall Street Journal, and, and the clip was basically about three things that really are, are very good about the economy that are that are really working well. Now, the, the thing I want to look at here, you say investors and savers need to be aware that another big crash in stocks and even the global economy is coming. But I want to take this sample from the Wall Street Journal that we just heard. And, and, and the key points of this are that, yes, unemployment is high and income is stagnant, but 2.1 million new payrolls over the last year, they say, is at least keeping pace with population increases. But business investment is near historic highs, $1.5 trillion a year over the past three years. Slightly more than 11% of GDP is going to into business investment, which should generate some future. And it's it's interesting that um, I do have to say, though, the other two periods he mentioned where there was heavy business investment was right before the tech bubble and right during the middle of the uh, real estate bubble. I don't know if there's a connection there. And But consumers are also spending more. They're saving less. They're spending what they can. And I'll just read you one little quote from the article by Eric Morath says, if the U.S. consumer can maintain their increasingly confident mood and keep spending, the economy may be able to absorb the negative drag from declining government spending and continue to move forward, said Jim Baird, chief investment officer of Plant More and Financial Advisors. The economy has grown 15 consecutive quarters. So, Harry, my question is, we know corporate profits are way up. They're sitting on tons of profits and cash. Why shouldn't the stock market be happy about this? Well, it is happy. The question is, how are we getting this growth? And, and I'll tell you the answer, and anybody that doesn't see this is, is a total idiot. And, and these people on Wall Street talk the bubble up. Every time there's a bubble, the more it goes on, the more people talk it up. Oh, this time it's different, and oh, the Fed's got her back, and oh, the economy's good. Of course the economy's good. The economy has been stellar every time a bubble has burst. How did the economy look in 1929 in the United States before the Great Depression? It looked wonderful. How did it look in 1989 before Japan collapsed? And we're about the only people on the earth that warned about that collapse, and it was going to last over a decade, and it was going to be severe, because we're printing a trillion dollars a year. Now, you've got a 15 trillion economy, roughly. Mm-hmm. It's taking a trillion dollars in quantitative easing, pure pushing money into the economy and financial system, free money, and about a trillion on average... It's been more and less. It'll be a little less this year, but it's been more and year before. About a trillion on average in fiscal deficit. So a trillion in fiscal stimulus, a trillion in monetary stimulus to create 2.1 million jobs and a 2% GDP growth, which is less than we've seen in the past, the normal boom period. So my question to anybody that says, oh, if consumers can sustain this, and oh, this looks like a sustainable recovery, and now we're, we're reaching launch velocity, I'm like, what are you smoking? 
What, where, where would we be without this $2 trillion? And the answer is, if we're only getting 2% growth with this much stimulus, way more than we've had any time except for World War II to fight a major war, where would we be without it? We would be in a depression. We'd be in a massive slowdown. So, so this is artificial. The question should be, how long can a government continue to inflate and then stimulate an economy artificially when consumers already borrow too much money in the boom? How many people do you know that aren't too much in debt? Consumers are 100% of GDP in debt, double what they were as a percentage of income and GDP than they were in 1929 when that bubble started. Why? Because the incredible mortgage thing. Have they done anything to really resolve that? Harry, isn't consumer debt heavily deleveraging? Haven't we come way down on debt levels? No, we've not. Credit cards have come down. That, that was a trillion dollars. Well, that's been replaced by a trillion dollars in student loans. Mortgages have come down some. Consumer debt's probably deleveraged about 10%, gone from about 100% to maybe 92 it, In the Great Depression, we went private debt got cut in two-thirds. Corporate and consumer debt got massively written down. Why? They let banks fail. They let loans go bad. It's painful. Austerity is painful for anybody thinks. I always say, if you don't want a hangover, don't drink a bottle of bourbon, you know? We drank the bottle of bourbon. Debt grew. And I don't see how any economist thinks this is sustainable and, and didn't see this as a problem, because they didn't. Debt grew from 1983 to 2008. Now, I'm talking private debt, not government debt. Mm-hmm. It grew 2.7 times GDP for 25 years. How can you have debt grow almost three times GDP and not have a debt crisis? Everybody's like, oh, this shouldn't have happened, and, and, and the government should uh, you know, make this good. We shouldn't have to go through austerity. Wait a minute. We lived way beyond our means, and, it was, and the private sector borrowed three times as much as the government did. And everybody's think, oh, we've got a government debt problem. And we do. It's $16 trillion growing towards perhaps $30 trillion in the next decade, by my estimates, mm-hmm. in a slower long-term economy. But the private debt is much larger, and nobody's looking at that. And the government, by putting money in the banks, covering the bank's losses, keeping the banking system liquid, banks are not writing down loans. If we'd have had a major downturn, they'd have been in deep doo-doo. They would have had to write down loans and, and clear their decks just to survive, and a lot of them would have gone under. And, and consumers and businesses would have seen as, as much as $20 trillion out of our $42 trillion in private debt at the top of the bubble disappear, take a huge load off a consumer of the private sector, and instead, this debt's not deleveraging, and the government, just like Japan's been doing for 16 years now, is piling on debt to keep stimulating, and we only have more debt than we had at the beginning. So we're not, we're not dealing with the debt crisis, we're kicking the can down the road. When you kick the can down the road, you always get your ass kicked harder. Ask any drug addict. Okay, so I warned you about uh, Harry is a straight shooter. So listen, so what's interesting about this is so he's saying we're not as in good shape as we, as we think, but it's undeniable when the all the stock indexes are at their highest ever levels. I know he says it's a bubble. I know he says that, you know, the last bubbles we had, no one believed it's a bubble to the end. But there's a lot of big arguments to say that, you know, this is reality, that, that these things are rising. We've had really tough times, and now we are coming out of it. And maybe we're just coming out of it harder because it's been so rough along the way that we're finally getting some expansion that we're due for a long time. Maybe so. But I asked Harry very specifically then, if, if that is not the case, then give me the direct correlation of how does the Fed-printed money inflate stocks? So let's listen to that. Let's look at that for a minute, Harry. So why are Wall Street and the stock market on such a different track from the economy? Where is this divergence coming from? What is the actual process of how 
how all this money is inflating a stock market but not reflective in the economy. How does this money get into the stock market, and, and how does it cause these divergent tracks? Well, well, the answer is who invests in the stock market. Well, it's major financial institutions, investment banks, brokerage firms, you know, investment hedge funds, pension funds, and the highest net worth people. I mean, the top 10% control about 90% of financial assets. Homer Simpson's got squat except for his $200,000 house that's now worth $100,000 or something and maybe underwater. This stimulus goes into the financial system. It causes markets to go up because these banks and investment banks and hedge funds are investing on high leverage. They're no longer lending the money. That's why we're not getting inflation. Money has to be lent and spent. What Mark Faber was saying in the first half of the show. It's just being reinvested in speculation. It drives up financial assets, and guess who holds most of the financial assets? The top 1, 5, 10%? They're doing great. I mean, I, I can tell you exactly what's happening. Surveys have consistently showed... When they ask people, is the economy better than it was three or four years ago, or, or you know, do you, you know, do you think we came out of this recession, or blah, 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 80% of people approximately say, no, we never came out of the Great Recession, and some people call it a depression. 20% say, oh, yeah, we're doing better than ever. The 20% are college-educated, 3.5% unemployment, benefiting massively, not unemployed, not high unemployment rates, not worried about losing their job, and they're the ones benefiting from the bubble, along with all these financial institutions, the banks, and the top 1% to 10% and even 20%, the very people who benefited from the bubble the most in the first place, since the Fed is keeping the bubble going and government's keeping the bubble going, these people are benefiting, and the everyday person keeps falling farther behind. Their wages are only going down. They're, they're, they're high unemployment, they, they have like 12 to 14% unemployment when you calculate it properly. And they're worried about losing their job. And when they do, and if they do get one back, they're going to get a lower wage, not a higher wage. So these people, and these people are the ones that a lot of them have their houses underwater, and they can't even refinance if they want to with low wage. They're not benefiting. The top 10 to 20% are benefiting. And you know what? They're going to run out of money. They peak later in their spending than Homer Simpson. And in the next year or two, they're going to roll over. Their kids are going to leave the nest. They're not going to be spending so much money on college and the kids anymore. And then who's going to keep the economy going? It's this top 20% controls over 50% of consumer spending, so you can't think of them as 20%. They're half the economy. They're the ones still spending, and that's why Gucci's doing great, and, and you know, Walmart's doing so-so. Okay, so if if uh, the stock market isn't really good on the basic economy and it's somehow inflated, then let's take another angle here. Okay, So now I ask them about corporate profits, because they're undeniably big. Now, I learned a lot in this segment. So uh, listen up to uh, how he says some of that's actually being finagled in terms of corporate profits. And I'm sure it's not the whole picture, but it is an interesting twist that I don't think we hear very often. Uh, I just really want to clarify how we get corporate profits. How do we see corporate profits? And how do we see uh, the stocks are being bought for corporate profits? That's apparently the idea, the rationale. Corporate profits are driving stocks. They are stock. correlating largely with corporate profits. So who's, who's buying? Uh, where are the profits coming from if, in fact, everybody on Main Street's broke? Okay. Well, I saw, you know, research a good while ago, about a year ago, that 50% of the corporate profits or more are coming from overseas because there's stronger growth in emerging countries. Now, that is starting to tail off because QE has negative implications for them. Developed countries stimulate. It causes inflation in their countries. It causes their currencies to go up in value, which hurts their exports, and these countries are big on exports, especially commodities. So, so I mean, that's one problem. The other thing, 40% of the increase in corporate profits in the last several years has come from companies buying back their own stock because they can borrow so cheap to do it that 
their, their earnings per share increases coming from less shares out there. Mm. That's not real progress. That's cheating. So, so here's what you got, Bruce, holding up this big, bad economy. Governments are buying most of their own bonds. They're issuing more and more debt for all these deficits and stimulus, buying their own bonds. On top of that, creating money out of thin air. So that sounds really responsible and sustainable and real. And then corporations are getting 40% of their profit increase from buying their own shares with artificially low interest rates and sitting on money. They're using their money to buy back their own shares instead of invest in new capacity. Why? They already over-invested in the boom. And if they are investing, they're tending to invest overseas. Hmm. Okay. That's why Main Street doesn't feel this. Main Street, this is not a recovery for Main Street. It's a recovery for the rich and in the strong companies and the financial institutions that did so well in the bubble. Yeah, I think people know that. I just think it's a mystery about why why uh, the, the, you know, these profits are up. But that's a, that's a great uh, uh, breakdown on it. Okay, so we're going to take another break. And when we come back, what we're going to specifically cover is the following topics with Harry S. Dent. We're going to talk about triggers. We're going to talk about what would be the events that would be happening around the world in different places. If confidence is going to run for the exits at some point, because this is all a house of cards again, what could trigger that? So we're going to talk about that specifically. We're also going to cover what should we be doing as a country, as an economy? What, you know, this is all what's wrong with what we're doing. What should we be doing to make things right? We're going to talk about real estate, uh, some very enlightening things that you may not know about the real estate comeback. Uh, We're going to talk about gold, and we are also going to talk about what the average guy should do. And uh, we will be back shortly with more of the interview with Harry Dent. Uh, It's going to get very practicable at this point, and we're going to talk about what this all means to you. See you in just a few. Content of Straight Talk Wealth Radio is for educational purposes only. Any discussion on financial products and their features is subject to change without notice. Consult your own tax, legal, or financial advisor as to your specific situation. Tax-free benefit specialist and insurance services, California license 0E48147. 